You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, Bill Powers, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, recipient of the North Carolina State Bar John B. McMillan Distinguished Service Award, and a founding member of the Center for Legal Education and Advocacy. Jacob Rabin is a senior at Broughton High School in Raleigh who has a passion for the law. He loves the idea of helping people and fighting for justice. In this episode of Law Talk, Jake tells us more about his dream of becoming a lawyer and what has led him there. It's clear he is motivated and driven to achieve his goals. He's been admitted to the University of Virginia for undergrad, where he intends on majoring on political science. Put simply, he's an impressive young man and someone I admire tremendously. He is way ahead of the curve and substantially more responsible than I was at his age in 1982 or 1983. I got to know Jacob through close personal friend and absolutely fabulous courtroom lawyer, Chris Nichols. Many of you may know Chris for his plaintiff's work in Raleigh and throughout North Carolina. Chris is the author of the North Carolina Personal Injury Liens Manual and an all-around great guy. He is also a former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and one of the most well-regarded attorneys in the state. Chris has been Jacob's trial team coach for the NCAJ, the North Carolina Advocates for Justice High School Mock Trial Competition, for four years now. The Broughton team is the 2022 regional Raleigh Regional Champion with the state finals competition set for March 18th and March 19th of this year. I recommend NCAJ trial competition to you. It is an amazing program and something people like Becky Britton, Chris Nichols, and Liz Avery-Jones have championed for, well, just about forever. By the way, if you're an attorney in North Carolina, be it a prosecutor or a defense attorney or judge, I encourage you to check out the NCAJ Mock Trial website. That's ncmocktrial.org. Its mission statement is uh, worthy of mention, and it says, according to their website, the North Carolina Mock Trial Program believes that Teaching high school students about our justice system and trial by jury is crucial to preserving our rights as citizens. Our mission is to create engaged citizens through hands-on learning, the hands-on learning activity of mock trial, thereby enabling students to gain a civic understanding, self-confidence, analytical reasoning, and communication skills that are vital for tomorrow's leaders. Chris Nichols recommended Jacob to me as a research assistant and fact checker for our article in the North Carolina State Bar Journal, uh, spring of 2022, uh, entitled The Wilmington 10, Starting a Conversation. Wow, that was a great suggestion. Jacob's help was incredible. The story behind the Wilmington 10, in addition to being incredibly complicated, also remains quite um, controversial at times. Jacob did a fabulous job for us, fact-checking, confirming the accuracy and sourcing of information, confirming quotes, and cross-referencing reference materials. I'm excited to share Jacob's story with you, and I encourage you to stay tuned to learn more about the high school phenomenon known as Jacob Raven. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here, although I don't think I'm quite a a high school phenomenon. Well, I think you do, and I know Chris Nichols does, so I appreciate your your humbleness, but uh, you you have wowed me, and that takes quite a bit. Um, Jacob, did I get that all right, the information? You're senior at Broughton, and you're leaving to attend school. At UVA. Yeah, that's correct. I'm 
that's that sounds right to me. And and uh, from the outset, I mean, you're you you're 17 years old, and uh, you're very well spoken. But I think it's also pretty normal for young adults to maybe be a little bit reticent about talking about themselves. So uh, I'm asking you these questions, and I you know, encourage you to expand upon um, or expound whatever the word is. I mean, you're you're one of the great SAT score. I went to NC State, uh, but I encourage you to. Uh, you know, tell us what you think. Um, and I'm asking because I think you are generally an, an impressive uh, young young man. Let's talk about a little bit about the um, mock trial competition. And um, first of all, some people don't know uh, what it is. And we have listeners that are high school students like you. We have listeners who are in college and law school and even attorneys and judges for that matter. Let's talk about what, N- what the NCAJ program is. Yeah, so I mean, it's a it's a program that I'd imagine was pretty similar to most college or, or even law school uh, mock trial programs or moot court, not to the same degree. But I think for for the high school level, it's really impressive. I mean, it's it's quite well done. Um, in September, we get a a full case, a forty page written case with uh, affidavits, exhibits, everything really, and we have until February to build not only one side of the trial but but both sides so if it's a if it's a uh, criminal case we have to put on both the prosecution and the defense in separate trials so i mean it takes a lot of work it's a lot of a lot of preparation practice um maybe not entirely law definitely some theater too but i think that's that's what makes it really entertaining Mm -hmm. how long have you been involved with the program i've done my trial for my full four years at broughton so since i was a freshman Right, and I think um, Chris Nichols' daughter Zoe may have started a program six, seven years ago. Is that right? Yeah, he's been our he's been our coach since she founded the program. I th- that sounds right. I'm not sure exactly how many years ago, but he's been with us the entire time, and I hope he stays with the with the program afterwards because he mm-hmm. he's been great to me, and he's been great to everyone on the team. Really, I'm not sure people fully understand and realize how much Chris does for so many different people in the community. I do because he's one of my closest friends, but he doesn't just do mock trial. He helps homeless people. He serves as a mentor to uh, lawyers. He publishes the book. He practices law. He's He's got a lot going on, and um, he's someone that, uh, if you have the benefit of calling him a friend, is just really a neat person. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of his, and he's been great to me. Well, that's, that's I'm glad to hear that. Um, how many... How many different schools participate statewide? I mean, it isn't just like big schools in Charlotte or Raleigh. It's, I mean, they're homeschoolers and they actually do pretty well on these competitions. You know, ballpark. How many different schools are involved? Yeah, well, the the homeschoolers have been our stiffest competition for all four years. They they win most of the time, um, but I think there's about eighty teams on average each year across the state, spread out in a bunch of different like statewide. It's it's everybody competing. Right, so 80 teams approximately, and there are, did you say six members on a team? Yeah, so we've got three lawyers, three witnesses on each team. That's right, correct. so six. we're pushing almost 500 young, you know, young adults, students who are doing this, as well as coaches, mentors, and that's a, that's a huge program. Uh, that's a lot of different people um, getting involved in something that... Um, is, is I think very valuable to the legal community, but just to students themselves. Um, yeah, what? I mean, it's, it's nice to, sorry, it's nice to think about that. Mm-hmm. We've got all these kids who are interested in this and 
maybe a decade from from now most of us will be lawyers and able to do what you guys do and mm-hmm. move things along better the community and hopefully do a better job than we do as well so what <laughs> what do the students do hey, let's talk about that a little bit because uh, you know when I was in law school we did moot court and it was a that's a different type of deal in fact my moot court I, I think it was an appellate court decision mock trial is you know one side one one person may serve as a prosecutor and then you may have to serve as a defense attorney and it mixes up this year as a criminal case. So let's talk about a little bit about what y'all do and, and the different roles you play. Yeah, so we're given affidavits for six different witnesses at the beginning of the season, uh, three for the prosecution or plaintiff, depending on the year, and three for the defense. And then we basically have to turn those facts, the fact, fact pattern we're given, into an entire case for both sides. So when it comes to the competition day, Uh, During one trial, you'll do one side, and the other trial, you do the other. So you have to be ready for everything. I mean, you have to know, you have to have everything down pat. You have to know, if you're a witness, no notes, has to be completely memorized. I mean, you you turn it into a character. Like, you're playing, it's it's almost like playing a a part in a play or a movie. Um, But then you've got multiple roles to do, because you have one for each side. So this year, uh, for our, our defense team, I'm... Uh, a lawyer that does a direct of one of our witnesses across of a different witness on the other team and then I do a closing also and then when it flips to prosecution I play a witness so I have to I've got to be prepared for both sides I've got to know the facts for everybody it's I mean it's a lot I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat it but mm-hmm. I think it's worth it I mean we put in a lot of hours especially now that we're uh, onto the state competition and it, it requires a lot of work but it's rewarding I mean seeing what my teammates do it's it's impressive how often do y'all meet i mean maybe it starts a little bit slower it starts to accelerate i know y'all are in the middle of it right now because you're in the regional finals is that right yeah that's correct yeah so we're prepping now for the state competition in a couple weeks so it's it's turned up a notch um at the beginning of the year it's it's a little slow i mean it takes it takes a little bit of time to weed out who actually is interested who wants to really do it and I mean, for Broughton, we've got two teams. We had two teams this year. We've had two teams as long as I can remember. So it's it's a lot of people managing, but we typically meet a couple times a week for the bulk of the of the season up until maybe the last month or so before um, the trial, and then we turn it up more. But I mean, we encourage everyone to meet on your own, meet with your witness or your lawyer, and really become as comfortable as possible with everything. I mean, of course, now we're we're meeting three or four times a week and practicing on top of that. So it's it's gotten quite intense. Right. And it, I, I think it may help for people to understand that it that you get judged by a panel of lawyers and there's actually an, an attorney or a judge that serves as the judge would during the trial. And the scoring isn't necessarily who has the better winnable case, like the state wins this. I mean, there are individual awards and accolades for the closing and the prosecutor. I mean, you've got to be, you, you, you may have a really good cross, but you also have to do really well as a witness for the state when you're in that role. So you have to be balanced, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the judges aren't looking at who wins. The case is, is written to be as equal as possible. I mean, we've come across so many little things. That it's like, how, how do we work this in? Because it's written to, to benefit both sides. I mean, you don't want it too one-sided. So yeah, so you have to, Every role has to be down. Every role has to be as perfect as you can get it. You can't have any any flaws in your in your case or any issues with uh, 
with any role because you're judged on everything and i mean we were it goes so in depth to like ob objections that's probably in my opinion the thing that i've learned the most over the four years just being able to think on your feet is it's such a useful skill that we practice so much and and put into play so much i think that's been huge for me and then even stuff like evidence like it's it gets pretty in depth and you get points for it all so i mean if you put on a perfect case with lots of exhibits your objections are perfect the judges will love that but uh, in the same breath if things don't go so well i mean you stumble over a little bit and your entire case gets messed up you can struggle and it's not you're not reading from a script i mean you have general points that you're trying to get out and you're the people that are crossing you on a case it it would be the defense attorney when you're the state's witness they're going to know the fact pattern they're going to know what the proposed answers are and they're trying to i guess flesh out the the nature and extent and the fullness of your understanding of, of the fact pattern correct yeah so with the crosses that's where even in our regional trials a couple weeks ago i mean we had we had an expert witness a, um who basically just made up some facts he, he made up his uh some facts from his his curriculum vitae uh vitae so our witness who was crossing him sort of went in and was like that that's not true he, he impeached him and that those were points that that benefited us so yeah i mean it's not it's not a set script the witnesses aren't allowed to look at material they're they have to really again it, it becomes a, a second person it, it needs to become second nature because yeah on cross you're you have no idea what's coming you don't know exactly what questions they're going to be asked so you got to know the facts think on your feet and be, be flexible to answer what they want mm -hmm. you you mentioned a couple things jacob that i think are so important for law students and people interesting in going into the law would benefit from uh, i fact we just recorded a podcast with a, a judge here in charlotte and we were talking about what law school is like and the path be, to becoming a lawyer and and one of them was the ability to think on your feet the other issue is the critical thinking aspect of things and that's why i like to hear that you're not just playing one role in order to fully understand how law works you have to be able to think about from different perspectives, the, the fact pattern from different perspectives, and play that role and understand and anticipate the arguments from the other side. In fact, when I'm representing people, I will oftentimes pull the pattern jury instructions and see, if I'm defending a matter, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case, see what the person with the burden of proof or production has to prove by pulling the pattern jury instructions. And that's a that's a great way to kind of approach these these cases. And y'all actually look at the rules of uh, evidence, right? So you're you're discussing things like character evidence and hearsay and, and things of that nature, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it it gets to the point where we're memorizing the actual rules, like 701, 702, etc. Which I don't. Chris has told me you guys don't even worry about anymore once you're an actual lawyer. Um, but yeah, that's that's how in depth it gets. I mean, we've got to memorize all of that, memorize exceptions, exceptions to hearsay, um, everything across the board. There. Well, I think maybe Chris's level of genius is such that he doesn't need to remember those things. I still refer to them uh, regularly, and you're way, way, way ahead than um, even most one L students, first year law students, because uh, the rules of evidence are some of the most important when it comes to actually trying a case. 
Let me ask you, what, what interested you about the program? I, I, I think I, I know that you all had a, a club fair or something at, at Broughton, and, and Broughton is a larger school in Wake County, is it not? Uh, yeah, it's about 2,000 students. Oh, Lord. So, I mean, yeah, um, pretty big. So, yeah, four years ago when I was walking walking down the aisle at the club fair, I saw mock trial, and I thought that seems really interesting. I think that's something I'd like and something I'd be good at. I mean, I didn't have a preconceived notion that I wanted to go into law, and that's something I wanted to do, but you need at least a club or two during high school, and that's the one that I sort of fell in love with. Mm-hmm. Do you play any sports or anything in high school? Yeah, I played soccer. Um, would you say it's it's as much of a commitment, if not more, than than being a you know a, a JV or varsity team, or equal or different? Or uh, I think it depends on the week. I mean, soccer obviously you're practicing most weekdays, and you've got games too, mm-hmm. and travel and stuff like that. And we're not worried about that too much. So I, I think it depends. I mean, some some weeks are more crowded and more hectic than others. But yeah, I mean, it is a big commitment. I'm not gonna sugarcoat that we've had many people who are just not interested in the the level of work and the intensity that it re- it requires sure sure and um you know, anything worthwhile is worth working for in in my mind exactly. and, and, it, and you you get better at these things by hard work and rolling up your sleeves now this year is a criminal uh fact pattern last year was a civil did they they flip back and forth every year yeah that's correct so, since you've been a freshman and, and grown up in doing this, um, how do you think you've developed? I mean, and this is, I'm not, this is where you'll probably get nervous because you don't want to be bragging about yourself, but it's, I've asked you. So, when you first started out, maybe you were a little bit more shy or less willing to speak up or, or say things. How, how, do you, how do you think you've developed both as a student and individually in doing this program? Well, I think one of the big things that in addition to objections, that, that first and foremost is where I'd say, I mean, just the, the more you do them, the more practices you're working on um, responding to them and even listening for them, that obviously is huge. And I think that's something that'll really benefit me going forward into the field. But then just the ability to, to, to speak in front of a crowd. Our first, obviously, the last two years haven't been in a, a real courtroom, but my freshman and sophomore year, we were in the, the Raleigh courtrooms downtown actually putting on a trial in in a real courtroom Mm -hmm. with spectators so being able to to think on your feet in front of people and speak in front of people is is a really important skill especially if you want to become a lawyer Mm -hmm. so i think that's a big thing that um i've benefited from obviously not quite to the same degree the last couple years but still talking in front of everyone on us on a zoom um is, is equally difficult i think so i think that that and the objections are probably the the two biggest things I've grown on. I mean, I was never a super great public speaker before, and I don't think I'm great now, but I think I've definitely improved a lot. Well, you want to hear a secret. I I actually am more relaxed in front of a large group of people than I am sometimes one-on-one. And as a an attorney, a courtroom lawyer, I, I, I play a role. I put on a hat. I once had a He's a good friend of mine uh, now, a police officer, who said, you're the best actor I've ever met. And he didn't mean it as an insult. I actually got a little ornery with him when he said that. He says, no, you misunderstand me, that you you play a role, you embody or in, engender uh, this role, and, um, as, and, and you advocate for your client. 
to me, it's easier to do that in our U case or TJ, continuing legal education and sometimes meeting someone new in a restaurant or at a, at a dinner party. And so um, I'm proud of you for doing that because it, it does take a lot. I don't think I could have done it or had the guts to do it when I was uh, your age. So um, you, you say you have an interest in the law, and obviously, you know, it's okay if you don't go to law school. There's no, there's no uh, demerit points for not following through uh, with it. But do you, is that something that interests you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, from the beginning with mock trial, when I started learning specifically sort of how and act, I mean, I had ideas, obviously. Everyone watches some court TV a little bit. But learning more of the specifics of what really goes into it and obviously how much work it is. I mean, I think that's something that I liked about it, like the fact that especially the first few years out of law school, I mean, it's it's not easy. No one no one says it's easy and it's it's not meant to be easy. But I think the it, it really can be rewarding depending on uh, what what the type of law you do is. And I think it's it's worth the, the work and the effort both through undergrad law school and then into the field itself. Let me ask you a question. It's a, it's, it may be, I'm not trying to trip you up or anything. I once asked this in a panel instruction or a panel of lawyers at a uh, law school, um, meaning that it was held by law school for law students. And, and we had people from sole practition, practitioner offices to uh, smaller firms to midsize to corporate. So I asked different questions. And I remember asking this one attorney, I said, why did you go into law? What, what interested you about it? And he very unabashedly said, oh, I want to make a lot of money. And um, I, I, I um, quickly moved on to another topic because that's really not, in my humble opinion, that's not the reason to go to law school. It's ultimately to help people. And frankly, not everybody makes money in law. Um, but what are your perceptions about that? What, what, what do you anticipate about the possibility of becoming a lawyer that interests you? Well, I'm going to be honest. The first thing I thought of when I saw my trial was, was the opportunity to argue. I mean, I'm not going to pretend I don't like arguing, and that's a skill I've certainly developed, especially with mock trials. So, I mean, just the fact that being able to do that for a, for a job kind of uh, struck me as, as interesting right away. But, yeah, then like you said, just being able to use that degree to to make changes and then, who knows, maybe go on to be a, a judge and, and do something like that where you actually are um, benefiting other people and and working to make the world a better place i think that's really important and it's important to have um have people like that going forward as as my generation sort of takes over the country right and i i and, and feel free to correct me if i'm wrong it's not that you're an argumentative person you're actually quite affable young guy i think maybe you like the intellectual pursuit of the argument and the and the um debate aspect is that is yeah that absolutely mm-hmm. um any any time a debate over sports or even politics, something like that with my friends always always excites me. Just just because the the critical thinking on your feet is that's just something I like doing. So yeah, it's not that I'm really argumentative. Right, and something that I appreciate lawyers in court, I, I regularly say, uh, you know, reasonable minds can differ and you should be agreeable in your disagreement. I mean, it's not personal, it's just that there's an intellectual aspect of things and Sometimes taking on difficult causes um, is is really quite fulfilling, knowing that as you've studied something and you believe you stand on the side of right or you stand on, you have the fact pattern in your benefit. And then weighing or understanding that not everything's perfect in a case. There's no perfect fact pattern. I'm sure you found that in your fact patterns 
uh, as they are now, there's intentionally, I, I assume, some level of inconsistency in the evidence and testimony to give people room to come to different conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you just said, we're not always going to agree. I mean, that's the whole basis of court, especially civil. I mean, there's there's arguments over everything. And I, I just think being able to stand up and be good-natured and make your best argument based on the facts available to you is important without turning it into a, a full-blown argument. I mean, no one should be standing here in a courtroom having a shouting match at each other. It should be arguments based on the facts, based on what you have. Um, so, yeah, I think being able to do that and be good-natured and and not turn it into a big fight is super important. And then, like you said, you're, it's not always going to be perfect. You're not going to have every single fact that's not going to agree with you or your side. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that that is definitely something we've run into in mock trial. So that's something I've experienced with already. Well, let's see. You were born in 2004. Is that right? Did I get that that's, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I'm interested in kind of what you're thinking maybe maybe we'll this will be a time capsule of sorts somehow this podcast will be saved somewhere and when I'm long gone and you're my age I'm 56 you're 17 so um, even if I live to 100 (laughs) I don't know if it'll still be there but from a time capsule perspective what's what's important to you right now what are you thinking about as a a young person, a student, someone who is interested in, in civic issues and, and civic duties and responsibilities. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I like staying informed and I like reading the news and, and knowing what's going on. And I think that's really important so that you can make educated arguments and, and have proper debates that aren't just shouting matches back and forth. So, yeah, I mean, I think just following what's going on and being aware of not even the the tiny things just the big things the big picture tickets in society right now is important i mean that's especially right now during everything going on specifically between russia and ukraine just being able to to look at facts judge them and and use them is important while knowing where they come from and and being aware of the sources and i think that's an important skill for the future that that everyone should really have and let's let's give some context because the next topic I'd like to talk about is your work with us in writing the Wilmington Ten. When I was seventeen, let's see what was big in the world. I think we were going through the end of Jimmy Carter era and, and Carter era and ending with Ronald Reagan. There were Iranian hostages, and the world had its troubles and worries. Um, the Shah of Iran had left, and it was uh, tumult and turmoil at the time and um, um, we have now sitting here today you mentioned Ukraine that's going on we've been in, in, in watching the news for the last two weeks about the Soviet or I call it Soviet Union <laughs> um, that's what we used to call it in, 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 in my when I was your age we talked about the salt treaties the strategic arms and limitations talks we talked about ANZUS which was us profane nuclear weapons in Australia and New Zealand having this um, agreement with them and detente and mutually assured devastation or destruction and you're dealing with um, the social issues that we're dealing with there was the January 6th episode Um, we had the uh, riots in Washington DC and it kind of brings me to the point that the Wilmington 10 and your work with us on that Uh, talk about that a little bit about kind of how you 
how we got involved with that and what you were thinking starting out. And you're not going to hurt my feelings. Say what you say what you want. Um, but but tell me about your experience with working on that article. Yeah. So Chris, who who you uh, mentioned before, texted me. I mean, I've I've worked for him for the past couple of years doing uh, every sort of little legal stuff um, from writing writing uh, some legal arguments to courthouse running stuff, everything really. And he asked me, would you be interested in helping edit this manuscript for the Wilmington 10? And I, I hopped at it. I was like, anything like that's right up my alley. Mm-hmm. And he put me in contact with you. And I admitty, admittedly was a, a little bit scared at first. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You were... You were intense, so to speak, <laughs> but then uh, <laughs> um, as we as we started getting getting along and, and figuring out what exactly you wanted done with the article, I think uh, we sort of came to an understanding, and I was we were on the same page, and since that, things have been pretty good. Apologies. I, I don't mean to be intense, and you're not the first person who has said that to me. Um, Once you sent me your first selfie, that's, that's when I, I really understood. Yeah, I am. Um, I am a bit of a goofball, but I, I am at time, and it's a weakness. I am overly competitive at times, and I can be very, very direct and to the, to the point and factual. And I, I sometimes forget that. And and on the other hand, I can be pretty goofy. I think um, maybe the selfie helped. So, did you know much about the Wilmington Ten? Uh, I had never heard of it before. Um, introduced you introduced me to it, and I first read through the article. I mean, obviously, I'm familiar with. Uh, segregation and, and that whole time period and the big big picture stuff that went along with it but no I had I hadn't heard of that the Wilmington 10 or, or even the the race riots and the insurrection in 1898 those were both news to me what were what were the big ticket items that impressed you when you read when you read that article and I'm not talking about grammar or prose or structure I'm talking about the story behind the Wilmington 10 and and the narrative uh, that we 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 wrote regarding the understanding Wilmington 10 in, in context with the, with the coup d'etat? Well, I think, first of all, it's kind of surreal that 50 years ago, stuff, stuff like this was still happening. I mean, just a few years before my parents were born, obviously in your lifetime, to think that there was stuff going on in, in our state, not even across the country, stuff that our country had been working to fix for 50 years or so stuff was still going on i think that's important to consider but then in the same breath you got to think about how far we've come and and that fact that we have made progress since then but then going back to the the coup d'etat i mean the fact that there was a coup d'etat like like you see overseas in north carolina in the united states was was that was shocking to me well let's talk about that a little bit because i not that the rest of the country, um, particularly South, didn't have uh, problems, but it is Wilmington to seem to be a flashpoint um, in at least a couple important times. So let's talk about the coup d'etat. I mean, we had, uh, you know, post-Civil War, we had Reconstruction, and then came a uh, an election for president where it was disputed, and there was an agreement uh, regarding the... Uh, who was selected as president in the end of Reconstruction, and we, we and I, I know I'm date-wise um, kind of mixing things up a little bit, but tell me about your understanding of that and how that worked. I, I think it's it's um, an interesting perspective. 
You mean the Hayes Toten compromise? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what is it, and and how did that affect the the, the coup d'état? What took place in Wilmington? Yeah. So if I'm I'm again not perfect. I'm not a historian here, but right. if I'm remembering correctly, that meant the removal of the troops from the south mm -hmm. that were sort of protecting reconstruction and helping it on its way that was the agreement they reached um but i think that sort of set the stage you no longer have federal troops in north carolina protecting reconstruction and what it's working for so then that sets this powder keg in motion in 1898 after this election and you have the end result is the only known coup d'etat in american history which i think still stands correct today i mean you you erase all the progress you made since the end of the civil war you set the city and then the state back however many years and it takes again until i mean we still see stuff happening like the wilmington 10 73 years later and even after that so it it, it sets it set everything back so far and erased so much important progress that had been made so I think it's it's really important to think about the effects that even just the Hayes-Tilden compromise had. Right. Well, and to give, again, I think it helps to have some background. Wilmington at one time was the largest city in uh, North Carolina, and people from Charlotte and Raleigh are oftentimes surprised to hear that Raleigh's the capital. Charlotte's the queen city. I mean, George Washington visited Charlotte, campus troops out downtown area, and and financially economically it was a deep water port it was important to the end of the civil war uh, when uh, fort fisher was uh, uh, finally attacked and taken over by the uh, the north it was a railhead which means that people could bring goods up the cape fear river uh, there they they'd get into the port and they could put them on trains and send them everywhere from uh, pine tar was, to tobacco yeah, rice and biggest railhead I think on the east coast at the time right and that's a big deal and and following the Civil War there were in order to get southern states back involved in the in the United States there were certain rules put in place which we're actually talking about today there was a, a ruling from a, a court judge just this week regarding insurrectionists and who could serve in in roles in government and whether or not they were allowed um, to participate in, in politics. And the Hills t uh, Hayes Tilden Compromise, in order to figure out who was going to be the President of the United States, we got rid of a quartering of troops in the South. Um, and then we there was this progressive uh, development of um, what they refer to as the end of construction, or reconstruction. And then the, the coup d'etat was in Wilmington, some um, uh, rather prominent North Carolinians, and the reason this article was in part written is that a lot of them, or a fair number of them, were lawyers are involved in law. And we're not talking just minor little attorneys. We're talking United States uh, ambassadors, senators, senators governors. governors, right, exactly. Um, but, uh, and I'm not saying they're the ones necessarily holding the guns, but they were um, involved in the process of in, in putting in place the Jim Crow laws that followed from the uh, early 20th century, and, and we had... Uh, remaining in North Carolina for a long time, um, but literally, they uh, uh, Wilmington was a, a pretty multicultural, diverse um, city. Had leadership of African Americans and and, and involved in it, a, an active newspaper, and some white nationalists got together, wrote themselves something called the White Declaration of Independence, 
got together at Tilden Hall, which is still there in Wilmington, uh, presented their their complaints and demands, made some rather um, scary threats, and then literally on gunpoint, as reported, uh, after an election, made some people that they did not agree with or like uh, resign under um, and uh, under the threat of death, and then put them on the very trains that we're talking about and shift them out of town. And that began the period of um, the end of Reconstruction and beginning of Jim Crow laws. And we get, we move forward, and it's systematic and systematically that uh, that took place, but we get into the 60s and the, and the racial issues, and then Wilson High School. Now, this is another big one that I think impressed you, and I know it impressed me, but what about, there, there's one seminal event that you and I seem to talk about, and I think we, we come from completely different generations. I think I'm actually older than your parents, probably. Um, um, but it touched us both from two different generations. Um, and what what touched you about that? Um, and I'll just I'll use the magic word to get it, to clue you in Memphis. Yeah, so that was a an, an all black industrial high school that had existed since I think the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And on the day that uh, that Martin Luther King was assassinated, he was actually supposed to be speaking there in Wilmington. And I'm when I read that when I first heard that I I didn't believe that at first, and I I had to. Checked that on my own. Um, definitely looked at a few different sources to verify that. But yeah, that was that was remarkable to read. Yeah, and I was able actually to speak to some people in the know. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was to come to North Carolina. I think he was going to come to Charlotte first and speak at a rally, and then he was going to go to Will- Wilson High School in Wilmington. And he said, "I just can't do it. I've got to stay here in Memphis. Things are are difficult here." And he stayed in Memphis and was shot and killed that day. And Obviously, you know, people were very upset about his his death alone, and I think it 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 was um, made even worse at Willison because that's where he was supposed to be. And then from there started this series of lawsuits with uh, trying to get rid of segregation in the schools in Wilmington and and the New Hanover County School Board in response to some federal opinions, which is in the article and you you research extensively said that there is no white school or black school. I don't remember the exact quote, but there's one school system, and they actually shut down Willison High School, and that's what really started the Wilmington 10, right? Yeah, so then you have all these African-American students who had been at their own school instantly injected into the predominantly white school, and obviously things didn't go well there. They clashed immediately, Um, I think. The, the principals and the teachers there didn't handle it well at all and it just escalated from there over the course of I think it was January into February of 72 does that sound right mm-hmm. well and then it actually it, it kept fomenting over the time and then uh, eventually some white nationalists different groups got together they were patrolling the streets there was gunfire uh, a local grocery store called Mike's grocery store was uh, set on fire there were accusations of people shooting at police officers, fire personnel, and the, uh, uh, I want to say dean of students, but the, the, there were several leaders in the school, uh, not the school board, but I'm, I'm drawing a blank on who that was, but they- Yeah, it was the superintendent. Superintendent, he, that's he right. He met with the, with the African-American students right. to um, try to sort of appease them, and then he was hung in effigy. Right, and then there was there were threats that there that, that uh, white nationalists were going to attack a particular church. It was an integrated church where the pastor of that church offered to get 
you know, people to get together and all have conversations. And a group of students decided to um, protect the church. And then that's when this firebombing issue took place. And these young people, not everybody, but most of them were high school aged, somewhere in that range. Um, younger individuals were accused of doing these different things. And they were 10 defendants. And that's where we come with the term Wilmington 10. And it gets worse from there. From the Wilmington 10, there were some interesting trials and tribulations um, regarding the, the trials and how they took place, a mistrial, a prosecutor, and where it really got notoriety was the prosecutor, Jay, Jay Straub. And, um, and in your experience with the mock trial competition, I'm sure you would recognize immediately that the things that were done and, and how juries were selected and, and the racially motivated prosecution would, it was not proper then and certainly it's not proper now. Um, so in, 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 in reading that article and helping it edit it, and you did a great job, um, um, Jacob did our, our footnoting on it, and it took a long time because some mm -hmm. of the sources, even the books, the historical books, and I put, I'm using my finger, my air quotes, but, uh, and I, I, I keep wanting to say it's revisionist history, but it, 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 it wasn't really history at all. It was a, it was a slant. Some of, the, some of the main books that we were referencing um, fundamentally got the fact patterns wrong. And so we used a lot of different sources. Um, what what do you take from that time, though? Is it is it a wow that's not that long ago, or how easily things can turn in the wrong direction? You know the um, uh, what 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 are your thoughts about it from from what we can learn from that and what we can do in the future? Well, yeah, I think it's this assortment of things like you just said. I mean, it was 50 years ago to think that there were kids my age involved in something like that and accused and in jail for something they had nothing to do with. And it took a lot of pressure from, from the public and from the media to finally, A, get them out of the jail. And then it didn't even, they weren't even, um, I'm blanking on the word right now. They, until, it was Part until of innocence. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they weren't even pardoned until 2012. So that, just to think that those were kids my age back then is, is a lot. But then, yeah, like you said, things escalated so quickly and we see it again today. We see it, like we already mentioned, in Ukraine and in, in Russia. We saw it a couple years ago um, in America. So it's it's a lot to think about that. Look, soci I mean, society's not always going to be perfect, but we, we need to do our best to mitigate things like that and, and avoid them and the drastic effects that, that end up occurring, like we saw with the Wilmington 10. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important as attorneys... And we, we wrote the article, and, and you and I repeated this back and forth. And I say we, it was Chris Beto, one of the attorneys at the firm, and me, and you're very much involved in that process. We did it not with a political slant, quite the contrary. Um, it was to start a conversation, not a argument, and and to encourage people to research these issues and, and, and learn from them. And the similarities between what we're dealing with now and 100 23, 24 years ago, it's it's really striking. It's really, truly remarkable. I, I do think, I like one of the things you said, is that we need to also focus on some of the positives, that we're on a pathway here, and occasionally we stumble, but the, the key is to focus on the path of where we're going um, and advancing and becoming better as a culture and a society. Uh, anything you want to add about, about the article? I mean, I, um, I, I'm, I'm proud of your work on it. I, you, it, it writing footnotes isn't always the... Um, most exciting uh, thing, but it's important. Um, any thoughts? 
well, I would say first of all, if you haven't read it, I would take the the chance to read that because it was, in my opinion, well done and really well written by you and Chris, and it it teaches you a lot. Like I said, I learned a ton about it just from my first read through, and then it, the like we like we just talked about the the greater issues, the the greater effects that the article sort of symbolizes are important to think about for everyone, not just lawyers, who the the target audience from the article, but everyone really. You know, the biggest bummer for the article for me um, was I thought the Wilmington 10 was going to be a complicated article, and I, I read the trial transcripts and, and from both the, the, pre, the, the first portion of the trial and, the, and then the secondary, and they're done on original PDFs where it's not like we have now where you got 20 pages. It's individual hand pages, and <laughs> they're all over the place. You have to open up each one and reading the books. But when I realized, boy, you cannot really talk about the Wilmington 10 until you understand kind of the whys and wherefores of how it got there. And and um, I mean, think about the high school students there. Their grandparents, potentially, or great-grandparents, depending on how old they were, may have been part of and seen the, the, the coup d'etat. And they were definitely there during the enactment of the Jim Crow laws. And and um, it kind of started there. It was the it was the, the, the spark that ignited things. And, and uh you know, the Raleigh News Observer wrote a lot of articles about it and things like that. So thank you for your, your help on that. Thank you um, uh, for taking the time to read it. I do encourage people, if you, if you want to learn more about the Wilmington 10 or the history of the coup d'etat, um, we got links to all different things. And, and study it. Be a critical thinker. Come to your own conclusions. Don't just believe what we say word for word. There are differences of opinions and there are differences of understandings or inferences that people take from the facts. So um, on, on Law Talk, uh, Jacob, I, you know, I, I want to thank you again. One of the reasons we like to do shows like this, and you're my first uh, teenager. I tried to get my daughter to do it. She wouldn't do it. But you're my first teenager guest, and um, I am really excited about your future. I, I see you as being a shining star and potential in the profession and, and having your head on straight. And um, I wasn't that way. I'm an accidental lawyer. I didn't always have the most... Um, altruistic reasons for going into the law. And we are in a season where I think sometimes young people feel shut out from the process. They feel frustrated. They feel like they don't have a voice. And I encourage uh, younger people. It's not, it, it, it's hard. It's hard work. It's hard being educated and keeping yourself uh, apprised of the situation. And you got to vote. You got to get out there. Whatever your, your theory is, you have to uh, stand up and stand up for what you believe in and, and, and voice an opinion, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's turning 18 next year, this year. That's one of the big things I'm excited for. So when's your birthday? What month? Roads. September. Oh, really? So mine is too. So you're going to be able to vote in this year's election in November, right? Uh, Yeah, I should. You'll be should 18 be. in September? Yeah. Well, there are some big ones coming up. Uh, United States Senate, a bunch of state and house seats. Um Local judges. Pretty I don't general. know. If, uh, yeah, I don't know if you're going to vote in North Carolina, or um, that's another interesting issue: is where you're going to vote and how you're going to vote. Yeah, you're I'm actually not sure about that. You're going to mail it in or uh, uh, show up in person. I think it's neat to go in there and um, I'd say to pull the trigger. I actually remember going into a booth and you'd pull a thing and the curtains would close and there were little triggers. Nowadays, at least in Charlotte, we it's a computer screen and you push it. But it's still neat to see it and and um, they put you in in this area and you. You push the buttons and it asks if these are the votes you want to make, and you can review them. And then there's a little paper recorder, and and um, 
that that's our civic duty, our civic responsibility. So I, I look forward to uh, uh, you being able to do that. And, and someday when you uh, get licensed, I would love to uh, be one of the people in the room uh, watching you um, take your oath and uh, swearing uh, fidelity to the Constitution of the United States in the state of North Carolina. So, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the work um, with the Wilmington 10. And um, um, sorry, y'all, I'm, I, I, when it comes to the mock trial competition, I, I do have a, a team I'm rooting for. Um, what's your team, Broughton? What's your school uh, mascot? Uh, the Caps. It doesn't make sense, but yeah. I don't know the what caps. the Caps. Oh, as in the Capitals. Yeah, so exactly. I'm gonna go. That's I'm go Caps, um, March 18th or 19th. If if uh, if you have an interest in it, um, look at the NC Mock Trial. Excuse me, mock, yeah, mcmocktrial.org. And um, and if you have further questions, give give Chris Nichols a call. I'm sure in Raleigh he'll, he'll appreciate as many people's uh, possible calling him. So thanks again, Jacob. And uh, if you have suggestions or ideas um, for topics on Law Talk, give us a ring. It's 704-342-HELP. That's 704-342-4357. And you can email me at lawtalkwithbillpowers at gmail.com. You've been listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for legal issues and legislation, practice tips, professionalism, and policy discussions. Want to talk to Bill Powers? Call 704-342-HELP. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decision.